Welcome to Fitness for Consumption, part of the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast network. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. I am Paul Juris, and I am here with my friend and my co-host, Gregory Gordon. How's it going, Gigi? It's going well, PJ. So today is a little bit of a, a, a novel episode for us, as this is our first actual uh, listener-directed podcast we've ever done. That's right. We did get a request from one of our Instagram followers, and he wanted to hear us discuss power. And so today's episode is entitled Power Play. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not talking about hockey. <laughs> That's good because I literally power. know nothing about hockey. So, Well, but, you know, it's coincidental that we happen to be recording this episode the day after my alma mater, the University of Massachusetts, won the National Collegiate Hockey Championship. Wow. So, yes, it was very exciting, and it was a blowout. Wow. They, they beat St. Cloud State 5 to nothing in the National Championship. So Amherst is rocking today, wow. last night and today. So shout out to my alma mater. I'm very proud of that. Go. What's the nickname for the team? The Minutemen. The Minutemen. So we're all very proud of them and very exciting. And so it's very timely that this episode, Power Play, is being recorded today. And again, we're not talking hockey, although we just started that way. Uh, We are talking about power. There we go. So what do you think of that? So when it comes Mm -hmm. to power, um, funny enough, if I ever have a conversation about power training with a casual exerciser, they'll typically think of doing like you know a really heavy squat or like a really heavy bench press or something or they might think or of olympic like lifting. yeah olympic lifting like a snap you yep. know they might not know, know the name but they'll call it like a crossfit like and so funny enough olympic lifting which is what you do when you do a snatch or a clean and jerk some of these things you do in crossfit so that's actually olympic lifting and power lifting is actually Three, that's, it's actually a sport comprised of three specific exercises. So a bench press, a squat, and a deadlift. And that's mm-hmm. the, there's a major difference between 
how those exercises performed, and that's really what we're going to talk about today, which is the acceleration at which you do these exercises. Yeah, so all of those exercises involve power, by the way. It's just that they're classified differently for Olympic lifting versus powerlifting mm-hmm. competitions. But yes, yeah, so there are some nuances here, and there's some elements of power obviously transcending those things that we need to cover. So we'll look at that. We're going to look at what it is that actually produces power. So contractile mechanisms, how do we use our musculature or neuromuscular system in order to produce power, which means then we're going to have to get into the fun stuff. And by the way, that's not Olympic lifting. That's going to be motor unit recruitment. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk a little bit about motor unit recruitment because that's what produces the effect to drive power. Mm -hmm. And then we'll get practical. Then we'll start looking at some practical applications and what people can think about in terms of helping others or themselves get more powerful. Right. So let's just start with a basic question, though, because while everybody has heard the term, folks may not necessarily understand what it means. So what is power? Well, so power, it's the rate of doing work. Well, what does that mean? And is is there a formula that somebody could sort of relate to or understand that would help them with that? Yes. So good question. So work is um, force times distance, and then that's Mm -hmm. divided by the amount of time it takes you to do that particular task. Exactly. Work is force times distance, all right? Um, And again, when you divide that by time, it becomes rate of any time that you have a variable that you divide by time, we can apply the term rate of to it. Mm -hmm. And so velocity, for example, is the rate of displacement, right? How, How far you go and how long it takes you to do it is rate of. So when you divide by time, we've got a rate of. Mm-hmm. And there are some common units of measure. So if somebody were to look at this in the literature and they were to read about this, what kind of units of measure, or even by the way, not just in the literature, uh, using equipment in the gym, you're going to see some of these common units. Yeah. So what are those? So things? the most common thing is typically watts. So when you're looking at uh, a lot mm-hmm. of, um, for example, we know the Cybex Arc Trainer has a watts measurement. Um, mm-hmm. And many machines have a watts measurement. That's right. A watt is a very common unit of measure. We see them on a lot of cardio machines. And what is it? Well, it's force times distance over time or pounds times feet divided by time, pound feet per second. That's a watt. But for people who are not familiar with the metric version, it's the same thing, force times distance over time. But in this case, it's newtons times meters divided by time, newton meters per second, and we call that a joule. And you'll typically see that in the scientific literature. In our discussions on torque, we did discuss newtons and newton meters. And so all you're doing is taking newton meters and dividing it by time, and you end up with newton meters per second, and that's a joule. Now, what's really interesting to me is that people tend to look at the distance divided by time portion as velocity. Mm -hmm. And so it's very common that folks look at power as force times velocity Mm -hmm. because distance divided by time is velocity. Mm -hmm. So that's on the right-hand side of the multiplier. So they're saying 
power is force times velocity. Mm -hmm. Now, it's true that's going to work when it comes to machines. So you mentioned the arc trainer. Mm -hmm. Another place that you would see something like that is a bicycle or a rowing ergometer, whereby the faster you go, the more power you see in the display of watts. It's very common. Now, the reason for that is because you set the force at a certain level, and then with the force being constant, as the velocity increases, your power increases. Mm -hmm. Absolutely true. But here's the problem. That doesn't work for human beings. So why is that? Right. So in human beings, you know, there are physiological mechanisms that just create our ability to contract and relax muscles. And um, at the higher the velocity at which we try to contract muscles, our force actually goes down. Yeah, that's right. It's called the force velocity curve. And you could see it in, in scientific papers and physiology textbooks. Right, exactly. So you know, with a machine, you, you can increase your velocity at a constant force, but you can't do that in humans. And in humans, if you try to go faster, you're actually producing less force. So your power won't go up. So if that's the case, then we can't focus on the velocity side. We can't focus on what's to the right of that multiplier. We have to focus on what's to the left of the multiplier, which is the force side of it. Now, we've talked about force in the past. Force mm-hmm. is mass times acceleration. Mm -hmm. And so the emphasis here has to be on acceleration. Mm -hmm. That's the key. So, you know, people have heard of acceleration. I think the challenge is that sometimes folks don't truly understand what it is. So maybe we can help people to gain a better understanding here, Gigi. Yeah. So actually, PJ, you brought it up earlier. So rate of is important here because rate of indicates that there's a a time component to this. So Mm -hmm. acceleration is the rate of change of velocity. So let me give you an example here. Let's say I, and by the way, we spoke on an earlier podcast about the difference between velocity and speed. So they both measure a distance, they both consider the time in which it takes place, but velocity um, is a vector quantity, and that, that's what we talked about, that a vector quantity indicates a direction as well. That's so right. let's put it all together now. So let's say I am going 10 miles an hour north, and then um, I'm driving really slow and people are honking behind me. So in order to go with the flow of traffic, I need to speed up to 30 miles an hour north, there is a rate of change of my velocity. And that difference is the acceleration. So let's say it took you one second to go from 10 miles per hour to 30 miles per hour north. Right. Then the acceleration would be the difference, which is 20 miles per hour north and then it was in one second, so your rate of change of velocity or your acceleration is 20 miles per hour per second. Right. Okay. That's absolutely true. Here's something that's also pretty interesting, and we'll see if people can really wrap their head around this one, because I think you were right in your comment earlier that people associate acceleration with velocity. The truth is, you can have a relatively low peak velocity, but a very high rate of acceleration. And this is where people's brains start to get cramped. <laughs> right. I could think about that too, actually. 
<laughs> yeah, so this is why you can't look at velocity at this. You have to look at acceleration because I could be moving at a very, very slow speed or velocity, but I could have accelerated at an incredibly high rate even to get to a low velocity. So let's give an example here. Well, you just used an example in, in miles per hour, so let's keep it really simple. If you go from 10 miles per hour to 11 miles per hour, right, mm -hmm. which is a difference of one mile per hour, so mm -hmm. you're still moving very slowly. But if you do it in a millisecond, mm -hmm. Now you divide that time into this number and you get a huge rate of acceleration, much more so than you would going in a second, right? It's a thousand times faster. Right. And so, PJ, I actually have a quick personal anecdote here. So as I've mentioned several times in this podcast, I live in New York City and I take the subways on a daily basis. And when you ride the subway, you know where the stops are and even if you're doing something else, like you, you know when to um, start bracing for the car to slow down or take off. So, But there are times, and anyone that's ever taken a New York City subway will tell you, it just stops full stop out of nowhere. You know, it's just the train like someone pulled the emergency brake. So a couple of weeks ago, I was on the subway, and I was looking down at my phone, and I was standing, and I was texting somebody, and we were on, we were going over the Manhattan Bridge where it's pretty rare for the subway to ever just to come to a complete full stop. And when you go over the Manhattan Bridge, as anyone also knows that does that on the subway, you tend to go very slowly for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. You're probably going something, at least it feels like 10 miles an hour. For whatever reason, the car came to a complete sudden stop and so much so that my phone jutted out of my hand and went directly into the leg of this poor person like 10 feet in front of me, <laughs> slammed her in the leg. Yeah, so you, again, you can be moving very slowly. You know, that train could have been going five miles an hour. Look, if you're riding a bicycle at five miles an hour, and it comes to a stop almost instantaneously, that's a huge rate of acceleration, even at a low velocity. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important for our listeners to understand that velocity is not the key here. Now, velocity training does become a factor in power improvement, and we'll talk about that later. But in order to understand what's going on, you need to really be focusing on acceleration. And acceleration from a human performance or human movement perspective is the product of rate of tension development. In order to accelerate, we need to produce a very high rate of tension development in our muscles. According to Dave Bame, who's been on our show, yeah. um, world-renowned professor of physiology, he says, quote, a high rate of force development should serve as a template for power training. Mm -hmm. So rate of force development is what we're really focused on. A rate of tension development, rate of force development, those are synonymous terms. So the question is, how do we achieve that? And to answer that, we need to focus on motor units mm -hmm. and motor unit recruitment because those are the things that we can work with within our system that allow us 
to increase our rate of tension development. Right, and I, f- I feel like this is a, a good time to just reiterate the point again that that's really what power training is, rate of tension development training. It's not a particular type of exercise or the name of an exercise. We're really talking about rate of tension development. And, and that's a great point uh, because we do too often associate training for power with specific exercises mm-hmm. or names. What we're really trying to do is drive motor unit recruitment. Mm-hmm. And so in order to understand that, we, we should start with a discussion of the different types of motor units that we're working with. And I'm sure people have heard of some of these terms. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great classic textbook by Roger Inoka, and it's called The Neuromechanical Basis of Kinesiology. And he's got a really nice explanation about different types of motor units. So generally speaking, what are we working with here, Gigi? So we've got slow twitch, which are um, smaller. And slow is in terms of what we call their conduction velocity. So their ability to send a signal is slower compared to other motor units, which we'll talk about in a second. But the main thing when we think about these guys is that they're really slow to fatigue as well, that they can stay on for extended periods of time without having to shut off due to fatigue. Okay, so they're fatigue resistant. Mm -hmm. They have what we call a slow rise time, your conduction velocity comment. So the amount of tension that's being developed is developed relatively slowly. But they also, another key factor, is that they have a low tension capacity. Mm -hmm. So they can stay on for a long time, but they don't develop a lot of tension, right? Right. They're relatively low tension. And by the way, what we should have mentioned before we launch this, you know, we're talking about motor units. We need to explain what a motor unit is. So a motor unit is a motor nerve or neuron Neuron, and all of the muscle fibers that it's innervating or all the fibers that are connected to that motor neuron. Mm -hmm. So that's a motor unit. Right. And And so that's what we're talking about here. It's a nerve and muscle fibers combined. Yeah. And we should also just mention quickly that not all muscles are created the same. So something like maybe one of the muscles that helps extend the tip of your thumb could have a motor neuron and, uh, you know, 10 muscle fibers related to that motor neuron. And something in the lat I've seen where they, for every motor neuron, you could have 3,000 fibers. So that's right. And that comes down to fine motor control versus gross motor control. Absolutely. And one other thing to really bend people's minds for a second, it used to be considered that a motor unit exists within a muscle. Mm -hmm. But what we've come to learn, and we'll probably talk about this some more, is that motor units can span several muscles. So people think that you turn on a motor nerve or a neuron and all the muscle fibers are in one location, but they're not necessarily in one location. They could be spread out throughout the body. So that's when we get into some very complicated discussions about coordination and isolation Mm -hmm. and things like that, which we're not going to do today Mm -hmm. because that gets us deep down a rabbit hole. Um, But But yes, so that's what a motor unit is. Mm -hmm. It's a motor neuron and all of the muscle fibers that are innervated by it. We started with slow twitch. What's the next one? So then there's an intermediary fiber. So Mm -hmm. there's, um, and this fiber has, um, it's similar to a slow twitch in terms of that it is fatigue resistant 
to a certain degree, but this one has a little bit of a faster conduction velocity, and therefore it also has a little bit more of a higher tension capability. Right. So we sometimes refer to those motor units as fast resistant. Mm -hmm. You may hear type, type 2A. Two, yeah. You might hear fast oxidative glycolytic. There are a lot of terms there for that intermediate fiber, intermediate motor unit, but absolutely right. So moderate rise time, moderate twitch tension, and some fatigue resistance, not as much as slow twitch. And then we come to the big boys. The last one, That's the big, right. boys. The big boys. The big boys are what? So those are the fast fatigable, and these are what we call the type twos. And these mm -hmm. are very high conduction velocity, very high force, but they are very fatigable. They are they are fast to fatigue. So you get a trade off here with mm -hmm. these guys. Very rapid rise time, so you could get force output quickly. A lot of tension but they'll fatigue out pretty easily. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. There's a renowned Japanese researcher, Toshio Moritani. He suggests that these type 2 fibers contribute more than two and a half times more than type 1 to total power output. Mm -hmm. So if we want to improve our power, we need to activate these fast twitch type 2 fatigable motor unit. Mm -hmm. That's what the focus has to be. So... We need to know what it takes to get there. All right, so we discussed the twitch characteristics of these motor units, but one thing we didn't mention was their firing thresholds, and that's something that's a little bit different. What is a firing threshold? So, you know, simply put, it's just there's a, there's a, a certain level of stimulation that needs to happen in order to turn on a certain type of neuron. So there's a certain threshold that needs to be reached in order to stimulate these different populations of the types of motor units we just talked about. And so when it finally does turn on, we call that an action potential, and that's what sends the signals out to the muscle fibers. And different motor units have different firing thresholds. So slow twitch fibers or motor units have very low firing thresholds, which means that it doesn't take a lot of stimulation to get them to turn on. Mm -hmm. But fast twitch motor units have very high firing thresholds, which means it takes a lot more stimulation to get them to turn on. Right. So here again is another trade-off. You get a rapid tension development, you get high tension, but they fatigue easy and they're hard to turn on. Mm -hmm. So that's the challenge for us if we're talking about power training. How do we work with these fast twitch motor units to get them to do what they do so well and maintain it so that we can improve our power output, right? right? And so there's this behavior or this process that occurs within neuromotor control that's called Henneman size principle. Mm -hmm. And we kind of look at that as the playbook by which we activate all these motor units. Can you explain to our listeners what sure. Henneman size principle so is? So the Henneman size principle is this idea that there's an orderly series of recruitment. You start from the smallest or the and the slowest, the the slow twitch fibers, and you keep recruiting step by step by step until you get to the fastest fast twitch fibers. 
That's right. So we're going to first recruit the low threshold motor units and then graduate up the scale until we finally get to the high threshold motor units. Right. And that's Henneman's size principle. Right. And you might see some interesting studies when they look at eccentrics that the recruitment may not be as orderly, but for by and large, this is pretty well accepted. Would you agree, PJ? Um, concept? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. I mean, there's Carlo DeLuca, who's a, who's a very famous neuroscientist. He also did some work that suggested that we don't always follow this really precise orderly process, that there are situations during which selective recruitment can occur. Mm -hmm. So I agree with you, and eccentrics is one of them. But I think for all intents and purposes, beyond getting into that selective recruitment strategy, for the most part, we do follow this orderly pattern. Mm -hmm. And so when people are working out, when they're developing force in their musculature, they start off with the slow twitch motor units and they graduate up the scale to fast twitch. Mm -hmm. But again, we can't emphasize enough that if you want to improve your power, you must get the fast twitch motor units activated to the extent that's possible. One thing that we're going to need to understand here is how do we know that fast twitch motor units are being activated? Like, what are the things that people do that actually proves that these motor units are functioning? Well, that's a great question. And if you don't have a lab or an EMG unit available to you, it's going to be hard to prove. But, you know, you could, you could certainly infer if you're doing something very quickly. Or, but, yeah, so typically um, the way you prove that is you do EMG studies. Yeah, so EMG, electromyography, is a process by which we use sensors either on the skin, which we call surface, or indwelling, which mm -hmm. are wires or needles being inserted into muscles. Not too much fun, yeah. I would add. That actually measures, it senses and measures the electrical activity. You know, we talked about conduction velocity. What are we conducting? It's actually an electric signal that is transmitted along the axon of these motor neurons. Mm -hmm. And these sensors pick up that electrical activity and it tells us what's going on in the system. So one thing that we can do with an EMG signal is called integration. And what it does basically is it takes the, the total power within that EMG signal and it measures it as a number, an integrated signal. Mm -hmm. It's a waveform. And what we typically see is that the more force you produce, when you produce very high levels of force output, we see higher integrated EMG signals. And so there was a study that was done in 1976. And by the way, for those people who are listening, 1976, this is not new. <laughs> this isn't suddenly everyone's caught on or created some incredible concept that everyone's glomming onto. 1976, all this stuff is decades old. But um, Comey and Vita Salo, 1976, all these studies, by the way, these references will be in our show notes. What they indicated was that integrated EMG levels increase significantly when you get past 60% MVC. So we know that in order to drive fast twitch motor unit activity, we need to get the tension levels well up over 60%. Now, 60% isn't a lot right now. 
But typically what you see is the higher, the better. And MVC stands for maximal volitional contraction. That's right. So that is an isometric contraction. Mm -hmm. Uh, In isotonic contractions, which is when we're moving, Mm -hmm. you know, we need to see tension output 80, 85% of 1RM, right? Your maximum isotonic capability. The higher you go, the more you innervate fast twitch motor units. But that's not Mm -hmm. the only way that you can get at fast twitch motor units. There's something else that you can do to turn on your fast twitch motor units. Gigi, what are we talking about? Right, and that's to at least have the intention to move very rapidly. Okay, so rapid onset, rapid contraction, even if it's not necessarily at a high tension. Now, I'm not talking about achieving a high velocity. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about rapid onset tension Mm -hmm. is burst-like contractions Mm -hmm. that can activate the fast-twitch motor units. And the way we know that is through something that we refer to as mean power frequency. So this is also a form of EMG analysis, but instead of just looking at the amplitude of the signal, this looks at the frequency of the signal. So think of this as like a radio wave. Mm-hmm. It's a sine wave. It's this repeating wave that has a frequency associated with it. The same thing as a radio signal, it's, you know, 60 hertz, right? Cycles per second. Mm-hmm. What we know is when fast twitch motor units are active, typically the mean power frequency goes up. Mm-hmm. So the frequency characteristic of the EMG signal gets higher and higher and higher as fast twitch motor units get engaged. And that's because it's measuring this conduction velocity. So as the overall conduction velocity, how fast that electronic signal is being transmitted, as that starts to increase because more fast twitch motor units are being activated, mean power frequency goes up. Now here's the interesting thing. Generally speaking, mean power frequency is pretty variable. Some circumstances show that it's increasing. Other circumstances don't necessarily show it's increasing, with one exception. When you do very rapid burst-like contractions, mean power frequency becomes consistently higher. Hmm. So there were a few studies that looked at this. Hannaford and Lehman and Kranz and colleagues, those were 86 and 1983 respectively, they discovered that mean power or median frequencies increase significantly during the first second of a burst-like contraction. So here's the thing. If you want to get your fast-twitch motor units active, you need to do extremely rapid onset contractions, even if it's at a low tension, and that will get right to the fast-twitch motor units. So that's that's a situation in which Henneman's doesn't necessarily play out Although you could recruit everything all the way up to the fast twitch motor mm-hmm. units all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, but very, very rapid onset burst twitches can definitely get the fast twitch motor units going. And so the moral of the story is if we're going to be training for power, we need to do two types of things. We need to be focused on high tension and we need to be focused on rapid onset. And when we do those two things together, or individually, as long as we're combining them, mm-hmm. that's what's going to get fast twitch motor units going. And so 
what we basically have now is we understand the goal. Mm-hmm. All right. The goal is to get to these motor units. We're going to take a break now. And when we come back, we're going to discuss how to get to them. Okay. Sounds good. Hello, all. GG here. We hope that you're enjoying today's podcast and want to remind you that more great fitness content is right at your fingertips. So please join our friend Jennifer Schwartz on the Think Fit, Be Fit podcast show, where she offers her experience and knowledge about exercise physiology and athletic training in truly unique discussions on building resilience and inspiring high quality exercise. And now let's get back to our conversation. All right, Gigi, we're back, and we just spent some time discussing what power is, uh, what our focus should be, acceleration, rate of tension development, which is the key variable, and then, of course, the motor units that we need to really get going in order for us to improve our rate of tension development and therefore improve our power. So what we said as we left the last segment is now we're going to start talking about What do we need to do? And there's some Mm -hmm. practical considerations that we should think about. Like, what are the general categories of things that we should be doing in order to improve our power? So let's get into that a little bit. Absolutely. And PJ, to your point, um, we're not reinventing the wheel here. Like, you met these, a lot of these studies are done from the 70s. So, simply put, one way of getting at these motor units is lift heavy loads, lift loads above 60% of our one rep max. Yeah, I mean, this is pretty common knowledge and, you know, people don't necessarily look at that as something to do, maybe because it's not an exotic thing to do. I don't know. But yeah, so if you can do anything that involves lifting a heavy load, uh, squats, deadlifts, benches, vertical jumping, pushing, pulling, whatever that is, if you're doing that with a heavy load, chances are you're going to get your fast twitch motor units active Mm -hmm. okay i'm gonna add one focus on high rates of force absorption and Mm -hmm. this is something that's often overlooked absolutely we think of acceleration as increasing the rate of velocity but acceleration is also decreasing the rate of velocity so acceleration is just rate of change of velocity so it can be an increase in the rate of change or a decrease in the rate of change and force absorption is often overlooked, isn't it? Absolutely. And PJ, I want to give a shout out to a podcast I listened to about a week ago. It's called the No Weak Links podcast. And unfortunately, I'm forgetting the gentleman's name. But uh, the host was interviewing the head strength and conditioning coach from Florida Atlantic University. And they measure their depth jump to their vertical jump. And so what's the main difference between, you know, a vertical jump and a depth jump? It's that there's a much longer uh, force absorption component to the depth jump that you have to get off the box. You've got to absorb the force and then really quickly use that elastic energy to jump straight up. Yeah, you know, I did a study back in the 90s um, where we were looking at ACL patients who went through reconstruction and rehabilitation And we published a study looking at discharge criteria. And one of the things that was really prominent was force absorption capability. And people weren't ready to be discharged until they could hit a certain value when we compared their force absorption to their force production. And Mm -hmm. so this is often overlooked, um, but landing, 
you know, knee flexion during running is a force absorption Mm -hmm. property. When you're transitioning your weight onto your leg in the loading response phase of gait during running, your knee's having to decelerate its rate of flexion at an extremely high rate. Um, So limb deceleration, like overhead sports, pitching, tennis serves, change in direction. You know, if Mm -hmm. you're a basketball player, a football player, whatever, if you have to change direction suddenly, those all require high levels of force absorption. So Mm -hmm. when you're thinking about developing power, that has to be really a primary objective of the training is to get force absorption capability up. Mm-hmm. Now, I also think about force production and force absorption in a different way. We need to look at both of those things within a single common trajectory. And what I mean by that is a lot of people think of force absorption as eccentric. And it is. Mm-hmm. It's eccentric. But when people think about it, they think of the lifting phase and the lowering phase of an exercise, mm-hmm. right? So you're doing a bench press the concentric phase, the lifting phase is the force production and the eccentric phase, the return phase is the force absorption. But really that's force production on the way down too, because what you're trying to do is you're just trying to manage the rate of acceleration of that bar. You're just producing force up against it. It's eccentric, but it's not really force absorption. You're still trying to produce force against it. What I'm talking about is moving a limb at a high rate of velocity so that at the beginning of the movement you're accelerating, but at the end of that same movement you're decelerating. Right. So if we look at like a baseball pitch or throwing a football or even a golf swing, something like that. So, you know, PJ, we've spoken a lot about this before, but, you know, in the gym, in the ecosystem, sure, like that's the place where you can you know uh, pull things apart and there you can make all sorts of reasonable arguments for why you would want to parse out specific concentric versus eccentric training but to your point you have to consider those things in the total scope of you know a movement of something where like within the one movement you are having to produce acceleration and decelerate that's right and so if you think of a heavy bench press even if your intention is to move very rapidly, which is what we would always advocate, the weight itself is causing the deceleration, right? Gravity's pulling down on that thing. There's a lot of force there. So as you get toward the top of the motion, especially when it's heavy, yes, you're producing rate of tension development. You're recruiting fast twitch motor units on the way up. But gravity is decelerating that thing so that mm-hmm. the antagonist muscles are not really active. And so what we're talking about here with force production and absorption is getting coordinated control between the agonist and the antagonist. So the agonists Mm -hmm. are accelerating, the antagonists are decelerating, and you need to do that all within the same direction of motion, which requires lighter loads and a higher rate of acceleration and then ultimately a higher velocity. So Mm -hmm. the power on the concentric side is going to come from the acceleration at the beginning, but the power from the antagonists will occur at the end of the movement as they're very rapidly trying to slow the limb down. So think about your subway scenario when the train came to a very rapid stop. 
That's what we're trying to do with the antagonist in very high speed movements. So there is a real benefit to lower load, higher velocity movements, particularly in improving the force absorption capability through eccentric contraction of the antagonist muscles. Right. And maybe we'll talk about this in a future episode because it's a little bit different to if you're letting go of an input, like if you were doing a, a discus throw and you had to actually hold the discus at the end versus release it. And it reminds me of, um, I'm dating myself here, but there was a baseball player called Reggie Jackson in the 70s who was my favorite player. And he would swing so violently, a lot of times he couldn't decide, he would end up on the floor. He would actually sort of collapse because he couldn't decelerate uh, his motion well enough that he became unstable and actually his uh, the center mass tipped over his base of support. So if he only had you for a trainer back then, PJ, we could have worked with him. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I could have made him, him any better than he was. <laughs> um, maybe my objective as his coach would have been to just get the heck out of the way. So, um, and then, you know, just getting back to these practical considerations you know, sometimes we think of power training as being exotic, but the reality is very common movements require power, right? It's, you need a burst-like acceleration. That's what you said. We're really focusing on these elements. Um, we don't need necessarily high force, but it's not limited to just Olympic lifting or power lifting. There are some very, very simple, commonplace things that we do every day that need power. So for example, when you're walking, we don't associate power mm -hmm. with walking, but in order to move ourselves forward, we have to have a burst-like contraction delivered through our plantar flexors. That's how we push off the mm -hmm. ground. So even though we're walking and it's a relatively low force activity, remember acceleration doesn't need high velocity and it doesn't even need high force necessarily. It just needs a rapid change in velocity. So yeah, when you push off through your plantar flexors, when you're walking, that requires power. And that's exactly what you see if you see uh, populations of people that have lost power, particularly in their plantar flexors, and they go into a shuffling gait where they don't have the power to walk forward anymore, and they just kind of shuffle. Um, and it's that's where this practical application of power for all populations is really important. Think about something like just stepping off a curb. Imagine, you know, if you're in New York like I am, people are on their phones 24-7 and they're going, stepping up curbs, stepping off curbs and not paying attention to the, the landing surface. And all the time, you know, I'll see someone step off, myself even, um, and you need very rapid tension development in order to make sure you can correct yourself, you can right yourself so that your center of mass doesn't tip over your, your base of support. And that needs to happen very rapidly with a lot of power. That's right. And, you know, by the way, your comment about people losing power in their, in their plantar flexors, there was a really there interesting study done by Casey Kerrigan, uh, who is a well-known scientist from Spalding Rehab Hospital in Boston and Harvard Medical School. And she found that one of the main reasons why aging people fall is because they've lost power in their plantar flexors. And it causes them, as you said, to shuffle, and then they stumble and fall. So 
if your work, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, but that's that's a significant consideration is that loss of power. Um, and postural mm-hmm. stabilization, you're, again, your train scenario. If you mm-hmm. have a sudden right. perturbation to your posture, uh, you're going to have to very, very rapidly stabilize. And that requires power. So again, it's not just snatching and, and you know, doing cleans and jerks. It's making these very rapid adjustments to our position and our movements that allow us to function. So that's power. Right. And thankfully, we don't need uh, a lot of specialized, expensive, exotic equipment to do some of this stuff. No, so let's talk about that then. So how do we do this? You know, and again, it's not about the snatches. It's not about the movements. It's about developing substrates. And if you recall in our introductory episodes, um, why do we move? We talked about developing substrates, right, or prerequisites. That's what we need to do. And so when we're talking about developing power, substrates, two primary considerations, load Mm -hmm. plus intention, that's a consideration. And intention is really important. I'm going to let you talk about that because we we really need to focus on that. And then the second one is acceleration. So we've got load and intention, and then we have acceleration. We can look at each individually, or we can combine them into common Mm -hmm. things. So let's start with using heavy load. We want to work with heavy loads. I mean, there's no question Mm -hmm. we want to work with heavy loads because it's promoting rate of tension development. It's promoting force production. But intention is critical here. And so why? What is it about intention that is so critical to power production? So PJ, we discussed it with, you know, one of the the most qualified people in this field, David Bain, mm-hmm. and his landmark study on where they looked at two groups and they, they were looking at plantar flexor activity. And so one group didn't move at all, but had the intention to move ballistically. And they found that that group also recruited their muscles in a way that was very fast. Twi- they were able to tap into their fast twitch fibers. Right. That just the intention... So it's not that they actually went, the, the joint didn't actually move at a high velocity. The joint didn't move at all, but because their intention was to move ballistically, that was enough to recruit all the way up, to, all the, way up the chain to these fast twitch fibers. Yeah, because even if the weight is really heavy, we know from the law of acceleration that the heavier you go, the less your ability to actually accelerate. So physically, we're unable to move at a high speed or a high velocity. But when you intend to move at a high velocity, what the neuromotor system is doing is it's increasing the stimulation to those motor units, those high threshold motor units, so that it does activate them. So as long as you intend to move fast, you're going to hit those high threshold units, whereas if you work with a heavy load or even a lighter load, but your intention is to move slow, you don't get to those high threshold motor units. And that's right. key. 
And that's interesting because PJ, um, there used to be a pretty popular sort of training concept called super slow. Mm -hmm. So they had a very particular cadence mm -hmm. um, with the intention of moving super slow. And their theory was that when you move super slow, it actually maximizes your strength and power. Um, but that's not necessarily true based on what we're talking about here. No, in fact, it's not true at all. What they do see is increased hypertrophy. And I think that was one of the alluring factors with super slow training is it tended to make people bigger. Well, right. the reason people get bigger when they do that is because they are limited almost predominantly to slow twitch motor units because you, the system doesn't recruit all the way up to the fast twitch. Fast twitch motor units are producing a lot of force and a lot of power, but they're not getting them. So what they need to do is they need to activate all these slow twitch motor units over and over and over and over and over again, which causes them to grow. Well, mm -hmm. that makes you bigger, can, right? right? Yeah. So super slow training is really a growth-oriented mm -hmm. training program, but it doesn't improve your power because you're not getting so, the fast twitch motor units going. Within the ecosystem, if you are only concerned with hypertrophy or being a bodybuilder, it could serve a purpose there. That's right. But if you're in the ecosystem, if you're trying to increase your rate of tension development, your power, that's not the right tool for that no. um, substrate. So we know that heavy training is good so long as your intention is to move the weight as fast as possible. We still have one drawback to this, though, is that... In actuality, the weights are not moving fast. And as we just mentioned mm -hmm. a minute ago, if the weight's not moving fast, if the limb's not moving fast, then antagonists are not necessarily going to engage in order to decelerate the limb at the end of the movement. And so there isn't this focus on deceleration through eccentric contractions in the antagonists. So the way mm -hmm. that we can deal with that or solve that problem is to focus on high velocity training or what is currently referred to as velocity-based training. Mm -hmm. So in velocity-based training, the goal is to move as fast as possible using very light loads, right? And mm -hmm. it is called velocity-based training. And we said earlier at the beginning of the segment that the force you're producing is dropping as your velocity is increasing. But in actuality, velocity training is not about velocity so much as it's about acceleration. So the goal is to try to accelerate those light loads as fast as you possibly can. The greatest rate of acceleration is A, going to create a very high rate of tension development to initiate the movement. But now, of course, you've got this object this weight in your hand or your limb mm -hmm. that's moving at a high velocity that has to come to a stop at the end of the range of motion. And so it's that eccentric contraction at the end which produces power to decelerate the limb at a specific point in space. Mm -hmm. So that's velocity-based training, high velocity training, which is really high acceleration training. And typically, the load percentages I've seen for that are typically around 30%. So just to think about this practically, let's say you were using a squat for this exercise. If you can squat 100 pounds, you do this with 30 pounds. Right. And there was an, a great study that was done, again, 1974, people. This is not news. Um, 
it was Canico and colleagues, and or, and we'll put that again in the show notes. He said that moving as fast as possible with 30% load is what's going to cause the greatest increases in power. So when you combine load and acceleration, see velocity-based training, you can do with virtually nothing. You can do it with a one-pound weight, a two-pound weight, doesn't really matter. If you want to get the best combination of load and acceleration, Canico is saying 30% is a great load to use, 30% of a 1RM. This is not an MVC, but it's a 1RM. Uh, some people suggest that that's great for upper body. Uh, there are some indications that maybe going up to 50% for lower body is going to be very useful. But the idea here is when you're trying to improve your power, use 30 to 50% of your one repetition maximum and try to move that weight as fast as you possibly can. Now, mm -hmm. one thing that people should factor into this is when they are moving at higher velocities, we need to include some actual target, a point in space to which to move. We don't want to move as fast as we can to some arbitrary point in space. We actually mm -hmm. want to pick a target. I refer to it as target training. And when we're moving at high speeds, move to that target and stop there very deliberately. Because what that does is it gives your brain, your central nervous system, an opportunity to plan the trajectory and to activate the antagonist muscles appropriately to get you to decelerate to that point. And that's right. part of the training. Don't just go right. and stop at some arbitrary point. Stop at a very specific point in space. Right, because then your body knows when to basically put, like to put it simply, push on the gas and push on the brake. And if you don't have something specific, um, you're not going to refine that ratio as well as you could. That's right. Now, let's take this another step and focus on eccentric training. So we're talking yeah. about concentric and eccentric together, but now, you know what, we can isolate the eccentric component of this, but what I'm not talking about is eccentric overload, right? That's right. a little bit different. Right, and that's, you know, eccentric training is... It's, it's starting to have a little bit of a moment, um, but it's kind of the redheaded stepchild of, uh, you know, gym applications. And the only time I ever see it practically is exactly what you're talking about. So there's something called a negative, which is if let's say we're doing a bench press. Mm -hmm. If I'm so fatigued, I can no longer actually produce enough force to push the bar up. I have someone assist me, and then I'm just trying to slow down the acceleration of the bar coming towards my chest. It's actually too heavy for me. So it's an eccentric overload, essentially. It's I'm fatigued um, and, you know, I'm, I have some assistance here. So that's typically the only type of eccentric training that I see. But there, we were talking about it before, and like this football coach, there's types of training where the eccentric component is very fast and it's rapid and it's, it's ballistic and getting accustomed to being able to rapidly absorb force and then elastically return it into another direction is, you know, really when you look at athletics, that's what it's primarily about. That's cutting and, and, and changing direction is that ability. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you don't necessarily even have to change direction. I mean, when you're a pitcher, once you release the ball, it's all eccentric after that. You're not changing direction. Right. You're not cutting. You're not using elastic energy mm -hmm. any further from that point. 
you're having to slow the system down. Uh, so yeah, eccentric overload can occur when you're fatiguing. And there was actually a device, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, there was a company that created a selectorized machine that did a form of eccentric overload so that when, let's say you're on a chest press, when you're pushing, you were working against whatever load you choose. And when you returned, it actually increased the load by an additional 10%. Oh, wow. So I've never heard of it. Yeah, that. I forgot the name of it, but it's the way it, what they did was they tilted the weight stack, which hmm. was uh, an interesting idea. It had a lot of problems and it never really took off. But the idea is we are stronger eccentrically. We're more efficient eccentrically. And so what they were doing is just making you work harder against the eccentric mm -hmm. pattern of motion than you were with the concentric part. Um, so there are different f forms of eccentric overload, but to your point, we need to do rapid eccentrics and people get nervous with this, but you don't need to do it heavy. I mean, that's the thing is folks think, well, we're doing this heavy eccentric loading. You, you don't need to, you can do it without any weight at all. If you want, mm -hmm. you're going to focus on the deceleration intending to control a rapid movement. You know, Roger Inoka published the paper in 1996. He said that eccentric training maximizes muscle work, it improves mechanical efficiency, and it also attenuates the effects of a mechanical impact. So if you Absolutely. get an impact, yep. somebody's hitting you, it's a very rapid eccentric that's going to help you uh, accommodate that. So the other thing it does is it changes the neural control scheme. High-speed mm -hmm. eccentric training has a different neuromotor control mechanism. And so if we're thinking about our ecosystem, we need to think about all of these different things. Engaging the nervous system in a different way is going to be beneficial. So, PJ, yeah, that's, that's a great point. And to your baseball pitcher example, so when, when someone gets injured, a lot of times they'll look at like they were lifting heavy load or they'll look at the concentric side. But when you... Um, if you're doing something like a pitch and you're not able to consistently absorb the forces to eccentrically control it, that's a really good way of injuring yourself. And you actually shared a story with me off the record um, last week when we were talking about some notes about someone tearing an ACL coming off a bar stool. <laughs> and look, anything can happen at any time, but that's, a, that's also a, a sort of a, uh, an interesting illustration of when if you don't have good eccentric control because what happens when you take your foot in the bar stool spinning and your leg is straightened out that can tear an acl if you haven't developed the substrates to be able to tolerate those kind of forces at that velocity Yeah, absolutely and, and let's go back to the pitching example for a second you know there um there are many many instances in which pitchers are severely injuring their hamstrings so think about it which hamstring are they injuring are they injuring the hamstring that they're pushing off the mound from you know that leg or are they injuring the, the landing leg so if you're a right-handed pitcher that you're injuring your right hamstring or your left hamstring and more often than not it's the lead hamstring the left hamstring because that you're planting and your body is pivoting over the top of mm -hmm. that you've got your entire upper body mass which is now accelerating toward home plate and your hamstrings are pulling to help decelerate that motion and they get pulled. 
So it's, you know, that's an example, a great example of the system's inability to effectively decelerate, right? Posterior shoulder problems, um, elbow problems occur because of a, an inability or, or decreased ability to decelerate the elbow joint. All of that occurs because there's this inability to rapidly eccentrically contract. And so part of a training protocol has to be high velocity eccentrics even if it's low weight, mm -hmm. um, which leads us to the next thing really, which is ballistic training. So we have heavy loads, we have velocity based, we have load and acceleration, we have eccentrics. Putting all of this together, we come to ballistic training, jumping, hopping, landing, upper body medicine ball catches. Those mm -hmm. are things that promote acceleration and deceleration together. So any kind of ballistic training like that, will be effective in improving power. Mm -hmm. Now, there's one thing which is going to sound a little bit odd, but even isometrics, believe it or not, on some level, can improve power. Absolutely. And uh, isometrics are indeed having their moment, at least on social media, fitness stuff, as far as I can see. Mm -hmm. um, to the extent that some people even propose, uh, these are actually friends of mine, that's all you need to do and actually doing anything outside of isometric training um, is just higher risk and with less benefit so here's what I would say um, in a vacuum if let's just keep it on power mm -hmm. in a vacuum like we said you don't the limbs don't actually have to accelerate or decelerate at a high velocity in order to stimulate the neural drive to, to have a high rate of tension development you can indeed do an isometric contraction, and um, recruit these fast-twitch motor units. Yeah, if your intention isometrically, if your intention is to recruit them as fast as you possibly can, then there's yep. a benefit to that. Right, and uh, good, good use of utility of isometrics if that's what you're doing. However, that's right. mm -hmm. if that's all you're doing, you're not taking into consideration, like the, the baseball pitch example we just went over, there's changes in muscle length and tension. There's changes in the pull that's being placed on tendons and ligaments. There's something that's always overlooked, which is, you know, your vestibular system, this, this collection of fluid and crystals in your ear, deals with inertia. Mm -hmm. And when your head is moving rapidly through space, uh, if you're only doing isometric training, laying on your back and pushing into something, you're not training your vestibular system how to control your body moving very, very rapidly. So certainly isometrics can be used and probably should be used for power training. I do it with my clients, but it's not the only thing I would use. Yeah, and, and only is the key word there. And I think when people find something that's attractive to them, that they support, that becomes the only mechanism of choice. And what we're trying to say in, in, in our whole concept of the fitness ecosystem is that there isn't only one way to do it. There's every way to do it. And so I agree with you. I think we can use isometrics, rapid twitch isometrics. And by the way, when you do that, you also get the antagonist involved. So the system, when you try to contract that fast, the system plans the whole event. So even the antagonists are coming in to work. So you can see normal agonist antagonist activation in isometric contractions. But to your point, without momentum, without inertia, without displacement, 
You know, the vestibular system is responding to acceleration. All of these things require some physical acceleration through space. And so to work exclusively in an isometric capacity is probably limiting. Mm -hmm. So I would advocate doing isometric training, but not exclusively. I think we need to think of this more holistically in order to get the best results possible. We have one more thing that we want to talk about. That's some special considerations. And we'll do that right after this break. All right, we're back. So we were talking about some practical approaches and considerations for developing power, things that we ought to do. Again, we're not talking about specific lifts. Mm -hmm. We're talking about how to set up conditions, environmental constraints that help us to develop the substrates that we need, the prerequisites, so that we can produce and control power output. So we wanted to talk about some special considerations. And again, this came from an Instagram follower who asked us how we would work with aging populations. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we already mentioned is that as people get older, the power in their plantar flexors is diminishing. In fact, that's probably the first thing to go as we age is fast twitch capability. Mm -hmm. We need slow twitch to stay alive. Fast twitch is lost. And so the old saying applies here, use it or lose it. So we want to think about developing power in aging populations. Mm -hmm. Now, I have this basic philosophy that there's no reason not to work heavy if somebody can tolerate it. I mean, take off the kid gloves and push aging people towards 80% of their one repetition maximum. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that if they can tolerate it. What do you think? Absolutely. And frankly, it's my biggest pet peeve. When I I work with people, you know, there's people that come to my clinic that are 32 and already think that, you know, they shouldn't be lifting heavy anymore or, you know, that lifting heavy is going to create injury. And it's because they might be doing exercise with poor form and then one day they go to lift like a couch or a heavy shopping bag and by the way they're not warmed up they're not primed they're just doing something rapidly that they're not prepared for and they hurt their back and they automatically assume it's because they're past their college years that that's why they got hurt and they shouldn't be doing that and this hap- this happens all the time it's on a on a weekly basis i talk to someone that has this belief so no, as and as David Baym, our guest, said, he believes in power training from to quote him from six to ninety six. So yeah, absolutely, and of course, look, eighty percent is whatever is relative to that person's eighty percent at any given time. But yes, they we should be pushing people to safely work within their higher register of their their capabilities, and as long as their intention mm-hmm. is to try to move it quickly they will get a benefit from it. Uh, But you're using the word safely, and we can't emphasize that enough. I mean, this has to be done safely and in control. We're not trying to hurt people, but we should be pushing people and not backing off simply because they're getting older. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if you can't work heavy, or as an alternative to working heavy, 
we can go back to this notion of velocity-based training. And it's particularly relevant in aging populations. Most of the research that's out there looking at velocity-based training in aging is good. Uh, there was a 2002 study by Roger Fielding. Roger Fielding is another researcher from Spalding Rehab Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Uh, he showed that high-velocity training increases peak power in older women. Mm -hmm. So we're working with light loads and high velocity. Um, high-speed training actually shifts the point of peak power for aging people. So it allows them to generate power earlier in the movement sequence. Mm -hmm. And that was a study that was done by Sayers and Gibson in 2014. So... Velocity-based training is beneficial to aging people. Yeah, and it's in, in a counterintuitive way. It's actually a really interesting way of working on endurance because if you can create power earlier and you don't have to get as fatigued in order to, to accomplish a task, you're actually, you know, you've got some um, energy left in reserve. And, you know, I'm working, I've mentioned before in the podcast, I believe that my father has Parkinson's and I, you know, mm -hmm. I work with him and with his team of physical therapists. And what he's gotten much better at is his rate of t tension development getting off the couch. So they've got a big leather couch. And earlier, mm -hmm. before he had the coaching and the training, he was going really slow and he'd really struggle. And because he didn't have enough strength, he would fall backwards into the couch. So now he knows he's got to push into the ground. He's got to extend his tips. He's got to pop up and he can. It's significantly better than it was a year ago. And he's obviously a year older. So it works. Yeah. Now, interestingly, you could say, well, you know, that's all well and good, but aging people may not want to do that. And toward that note, there was a study that was published in 2018 uh, by Richardson and colleagues, and I'm very familiar with this study because I co-authored ah. it. So I was directly involved in this study, and what we found was that within an aging population, working with low loads and high velocity, so velocity-based training, evoked lower perceptions of perceived effort and fatigue. And people were willing to do it because they didn't feel like it was so stressful and strenuous and arduous. Mm -hmm. So we actually created a condition that was more tolerable, that required less perceived effort, yet still delivered results. So from sort of a, a psychomotor type of approach, people are really willing to do it. They find that they can do it. And so... I would strongly advocate with aging populations starting to get into a more low load, higher velocity approach mm -hmm. and probably get great results um, and people will enjoy it for sure. Yeah. And this is a little bit of, you know, we, we focus on the science on this podcast, but there's the mm -hmm. art side too, to being whether you're working with your kids, on yourself, with clients. And so there's a little bit of the artistry. And look, everyone has a little bit of competitive nature within them. And so, you know, it can be as simple as like, come on, you know, Wilma's getting up faster than, you know, in a playful, obviously respectful, playful way, not being a, mm -hmm. a drill sergeant if that's not what someone likes. But there, that's where the artistry comes in, that you, you work with, even if it's yourself, but you work with someone to find some way of motivating them. Um, and yeah, that's what I've found 
through my own work as well, that people will do it under the right conditions. Speaking of the right conditions and making things more easy and fun and more enjoyable, I'm actually going to go in the opposite direction. And I'm going to talk about another type of training for power (laughs) that is very arduous, takes a certain temperament to want to do, but it uses fatigue as a driver for power output, which sounds like an anomaly. Um, All I can say is don't do this without a net. Uh, This is really, really strenuous and really stressful. And if you're working with athletes, it's something you might consider. Definitely as an off-season training protocol, you don't want to be doing this in season. But we don't associate fatigue with increases in power. But you know what? There's a funny thing happens on the way to fatigue. And just to add a little historical color to this, You know, I did my doctoral research in EMG, Mm -hmm. and through my research, I came across a study in 1975, (laughs) again, this stuff's been out there a long time. This was a landmark study that was done by Milner, Brown, Stein, and Lee. Again, this will be in the show notes. They were looking at the effects of fatigue on motor unit recruitment, and you would think As we discussed earlier, those fast-twitch motor units are very fatigable. So if you're fatiguing, you're not going to be able to turn on those fast-twitch motor units. I mean, they're fatiguing. And interestingly enough, in our next episode, and we'll get to that in a minute, we're going to talk about what happens to these firing thresholds of these motor units. But they're not really able to help. So the question is, then how in the heck... Can that help improve our power? If we're not able to get to fast twitch motor units, which is essentially what I'm saying is happening here, how does that help improve our power? The answer is when you fatigue, if you're doing it deliberately, the slow twitch motor units become synchronized in their firing. So what Milner, Brown, Stein, and Lee found is that motor unit firing becomes more synchronous when you start to fatigue. And the way that I would explain that, the analogy that I could offer, is imagine a tug of war, and on one side of the line, people are just kind of randomly pulling, but on the other side of the line, they're going one, two, three, pull, and everyone pulls at the same moment. Mm -hmm. You could imagine which side's going to win that tug Mm -hmm. of war. And so the synchronous side, when you synchronize motor units and get them all to fire at the same instant, now suddenly, even though slow twitch motor units are not producing as much tension on their own, when you pull them into a synchronous contraction, suddenly the power increases. So what is happening here, there's a study in 2002 by Semler the most likely functional role of synchronization is to increase the rate of force development in muscle. And so we are actually using fatigue to try to induce a state of synchronization that can then be introduced into a training application in order to improve power. And here's how you do it. Mm -hmm. Again, don't do this without a net. What you're going to do is a traditional strength training exercise. Let's say we want to do this for the legs. Mm -hmm. 
were going to do, let's say, a leg press, and I would not do this with a squat because it becomes too risky. I would do it with a leg press. I would have someone do a heavy set of leg presses going up to, let's say, 90% or 95% of their 1RM, and then do a strip set, right? Strip set is do as many reps as you can, drop the weight, do as many reps as you can, drop the weight, no rest in between. Take it all the way down until you're at the first plate, the top plate on the leg press, and then get them off and have them start jumping. Hmm. So the jumping part is the part that's the high rate of tension development. The leg press part is the fatigue part. Combine these things. Now the system has to synchronize motor unit activity and somehow, if possible, through jumping, activate some fast twitch motor units. Right. That improves power. I did a study with a collegiate basketball team, and we did a six-week training program using this methodology, and we improved their vertical jump by three inches. Yeah, which... Which is huge. Huge, yeah. Right, but again, this is incredibly stressful. You should only do this once a week or once every two weeks, if even that, uh, because it can wear people out, but it really does work. So... I'm going to leave it at that because if anybody wants to look into stuff like this or, or hit us up on our Instagram um, or our round table and let's talk about it because there is some really interesting stuff to be done here. Um, but it takes a lot of practice and a keen eye for when someone's struggling. Yeah. And we're going to discuss a paper in our, in the next episode we plan on doing, which is based on exactly what we are talking about time under tension and mm-hmm. they actually show that in a fatigue state for these ballistic contractions, you can actually get the fast twitch to chime in if, you know, for these very brief ballistic contractions. So even when you're fatigued and now you've got all the slow twitch motor units sort of summating to create uh, synchronization, you can get the fast twitch if it's a very brief contraction to sit on top of that. Now you've got this whole pool of motor units, you know, participating, um, which is definitely something you want to take advantage of. So we're going to leave it at that. And I'm going to ask you a question, Gigi, that, you know, I've asked you before. What really matters? Well, what really matters is that you're taking the concept of power training and understanding it for what it is, which is rate of tension development training for the purpose of you know, whether it's a sporting purpose or like we said, being able that you're 95 and being able to stand off a couch easier or being able to uh, take a subway ride without having your phone um, get tossed into leave your hand, leave your hand. So and not to confuse or just to think about power training as this really limited application for people that are, you know, trying to do Olympic lifting or, you know, a professional powerlifting, which is, you know, just a certain type of exercise. Power training is practical in literally everybody's daily life. We're all walking, stepping off curbs, uh, changing directions. So really understanding power training for what it is and then using your time in the gym to be able to build the substrates that are going to actually help you with those, um, being able to perform those tasks. Yeah. And again, let's think of this in terms of our fitness ecosystem. It's not one or the other. Mm -hmm. It's part of a holistic approach to improving our ability to move. 
right? What we said is, what is fitness? Fitness is a measure of how well we move. Mm. And so using this as part of a fitness ecosystem is going to help us to move better. And so how we get at it is important. Think about the things that we discussed here of the environmental constraints that we want to set up, the conditions we want to create, the factors that we want to consider as we're doing this. All of these things will go into an ecosystem that help us to move better, be more functional, and be healthier. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was really an interesting discussion, and this is going to lead us into our next episode, which is something that has been in the collective consciousness for a very, very long time, and that's the notion of time under tension. And the prevailing wisdom is we need to maximize time under tension in order to get re- results, right? The longer we keep tension on the muscle, the better off we're going to be. But are we really better off doing that? Right. And the question is, what does scientific literature tell us about it? And of course, me being the contrarian that I am, I'm going to take this one on and you're going to join me in this journey of trying to pick apart this notion of time under tension and maybe give people something else to think about. And we're going to do that in our next episode. So please stick with us and stay tuned for that. Uh, But in the meantime, that's the end of this episode of Fitness for Consumption. And we're just glad that everybody went along for this journey with us. Yep. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode and it gave you lots to think about. So while you're thinking, why don't you consider becoming a member of our roundtable? What's the roundtable? Well, it's a place where we meet to discuss, opine, question, comment, and just engage in respectful conversation about all things related to human movement science. Everyone that joins has an equal seat at the table. So become a member by finding us on Instagram and sending us a message or visiting us at our Facebook group, the Fitness for Consumption Roundtable, and just click to join. We hope to see you there.